Welcome to Something for the Turbo, the new weekly podcast brought to you by Unfound, the global platform for the travel-loving cyclist. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Something for the Turbo. I am your host Jules and I hope you are all well wherever you are listening in the world. If you're new to the podcast, make sure you go back and check out some of our previous amazing conversations with cycling personalities from around the world. If you're a regular viewer, thanks for continuing to support the podcast. If you haven't yet, please do subscribe. And if you haven't joined the Unfound community, please do download the Unfound app. You can find it in the App Store or on Google Play. You just need to download it, register. It's all totally free. And you can get on there and share rides and photos and stories and articles and connect with cyclists from around the world. Today, I really enjoyed the conversation. Actually, I'll tell you a lie. It's not, it wasn't actually recorded today. We had to record this a few weeks ago because today's guest has just signed for a new team, which was announced yesterday. And well, I wasn't allowed to publish the podcast until his team had announced he was joining. But as we all know, Axel Merckx's Hagen's Berman Axion cycling team is regarded as one of the world's best development squads. And they have just signed today's guest, the exciting young British rider, Joe Laverick, who joins us to discuss his career from how he got into cycling, his year in France, signing with Axion, moving to Girona, Spain next year, what his winter this year looks like, what his racing next year might be looking like, the amazing Dave Rayner Foundation, pro cycling and moonlighting as a journalist for Cycling Tips, the British Continental and Cycling Weekly. I absolutely love this conversation. Joe's obviously got his whole career ahead of him and I very much look forward to following his progress. He's a thoroughly nice guy with an amazing journey so far and it's only just getting going. Anyway, without further ado, let me bring you Joe and enjoy the conversation. Joe, very excited to have you joining us today. Thank you for taking the time. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, thanks for joining us. Uh, you've been well? You're up in Grimsby? Is it sunny up there? Uh, it's actually been raining all day. I nipped out for an hour and a half and kind of got a bit wet, but not too bad. But yeah, it's uh, it's never very nice up north, really. <laughs> I'm not sure that's so true. So to talk us through, you, you've literally, you had three weeks off the bike and then you're sort of back on it again now, are you? Yeah, well, a bit longer than three weeks because I, um, I got concussed in what was meant to be my penultimate race of the year, called the season a day there. And then I was, I think I was off for three and a half weeks in the end, a mixture because of um, my concussion, the quarantine when I got back to the UK and the fact that I was waiting for my new bike to come. Um, so yeah, it was about three and a half weeks and boy, I knew about it. Um, my first ride back was, was depressingly slow. Was it really? You could, just from that amount of time, you didn't feel fresh. You felt you could, you could notice it, could you? Oh, I was like a whole different bike rider. Yeah. Ridiculous how much form and just condition I'd lost in, I suppose a month is a long time off the bike. Yeah, of course. Yeah. When you put it like that. So tell us a, a little bit about yourself. Obviously you mentioned, I mentioned you're from, you're up in Grimsby. It's where you're from. You, you grew up as a, as a, as a football player, right? That was your first love. Yeah. So I played football from, well, from basically as long as I can remember. So aged five or six, I think I started in my first team as goalkeeper and I played for 10 years. So I think I was 15 when I stopped, um, which sounds really young considering I played for 10 years. But um, yeah, I just stopped because, I don't know, cycling was starting to become more and more into my life. And I was kind of riding in the morning and then I'd go to a football match in the afternoon. And I fell out of love with playing football a little bit. So I kind of, I thought it was time to focus a little bit more on the on the bike riding yeah that's fair enough and it's it's really interesting tell us what your inspiration was to sort of picking up the bike and getting into it because i'm right in saying you're not from a, a cycling family are you no not at all so um 
not a single person in my family or even the extended family is a cyclist. Like, obviously, we have bikes, but not cyclists. And I can't really put my finger on it, to be honest. Um, I get asked this question so much, and I've not got a clue. Um, It must be something to do with the Wigo or Froome effect, because I think it was 2014 I bought my first road bike. So... I don't know. That's just after the Olympics and Wiggins. Froome had just won the tour. So it was probably a part of that without me even realising. Hang on. I'm just, my maths is not great. So you basically went from getting your first road bike to being riding sort of elite pro within three years. Um, Four years. So yeah. I got my first road bike March 2014 and September 2018, I was at Worlds, uh, Junior Worlds. So and then signed for Madison, Madison Genesis, that is UCI. They were a UCI Conti team at the time. Um, I think I signed for them August 2018, September 2018 for the next year. So, yeah, about four and a half years. And I didn't really start racing until 2016 even. So it was in hindsight is quite quick. And me and my parents laugh sometimes on when Facebook memories come up and it's like, oh, bloody hell this like this was only three years ago look at the comparison yeah. um, so much has happened in that time right you must be like jesus that's yeah, uh, that's kind of crazy looking back and going oh, i was still i don't know i only won schoolboy uh nationals what what would it be now four years ago three four years ago i was in year 10 hadn't done my gcses and just won my first national title and that was like a massive fluke at the time and yeah time i don't know time flies yeah, it does. It does fly as you get older, even quicker. But so here's a question for you, just out of interest, because you've obviously got incredible DNA and natural talent, obviously, as well as the the hard work and dedication. But growing up with the football, were you, were you any good? Were you a nat- did you were you good at running? Did you feel that you're a natural athlete, or you just sort of picked up the bike and realised you could do stuff that other people couldn't? Um. Well, this we'll take this in two parts. So, firstly, as a goalkeeper, you don't have to be the fittest person on the pitch, but yeah. Without blowing my own trumpet, I was a pretty good goalkeeper. I played for County, which isn't the best level in the world, but it's decent. And uh, yeah, I was good for my age. Whereas running, I was always kind of average, so like maybe slightly better than average. And then I picked up the bike in, I'd have been in year eight, so 14, uh, 13, 14. And it was after year eight where even at school in athletics, my engine just kind of took off. So in year seven and eight, which is the first two years of secondary school, I'd say I was just kind of an average to slightly better than average athlete. Whereas after that, I uh, I got better at cross country. My 800 meters, 800 meters was my specialist event, let's say, yeah. athletics. I won county championships in that, I think. I can't remember. I won 800 meter races and stuff. So I presume I had the DNA stroke, whatever, and an engine there. But I was horrendous at cycling uh, at the start. So I remember I did my first road race, well, closed circuit race at York. And I must have been a youth A, so under 16, I want to say. Yeah. B, second year youth B, I can't remember. And I got lapped four times in an hour. And it's only a kilometre long circuit. So I was horrendous. Um, about my racing career. So well, <laughs> I'm not going to comment on that. but <laughs> But yeah four or five times I got lapped and then the year after I did a good winter training with the local coach and I'd gone from being lapped to kind of attacking off the front so I'm going to guess there was as I said the sort of underlying engine there just it needed a bit of training and tweaking to get going. 
Yeah, and I suppose that's that. And you were sort of naturally developing as a adolescent as well at the same time. It all happened at once, I suppose, a, a, a bit of both. But uh, and how now? Obviously, you're still developing as a rider. How would you describe yourself as a rider? Would that sort of 800 meter r- athletics sort of translate into yourself as a rider? Are you sort of a, a punchy. What kind of rider would you sort of describe yourself as? Um, quite funnily, almost the opposite, actually. So I could never sprint, even when I did athletics, I could never sprint. I could only, well, I, whenever I won 800 meters, it was by going long. So I'd have to go like a lap to go or two, three hundred to go. I'd have to kick. I was horrendous at the hundred and I'm a diesel engine on the bike. Big, big, big diesel. I'm, uh, people who know me, will know I can't really sprint at all. It's a big focus of this winter, actually. And I'd say traditionally I've called myself a time trialist. But this season, I've been really careful not to put myself in that box because, as you alluded to, I'm still growing, still developing. Nobody really knows. Like, um, a great example is Marcel Kittel won Junior Time Trial Worlds and then arguably was the best sprinter of his period of time. So it doesn't really mean much. No, it doesn't, isn't it? And when I find it hard, it must be so hard for teams sort of scouting young talent coming through to, you know, with, as athletes develop so much. It's quite late with cycling, isn't it? I think other sports, you probably can pick it earlier at a, at a younger age. But to to your point there, like you never really know until someone gets to sort of early 20s or even mid 20s, really. The thing with cycling compared to other sports, I think, is it's a lot more physical based rather than skill-based I'm not saying there's no skill in in cycling I'm not saying that at all but if you're a gifted footballer that's pretty clear early on Uh, whereas you could have two years and be a little bit late to puberty or do some training which you react really well to or even just change a coach and go from training which doesn't work for you to training which really works for you and that I think that's why we see people develop at really different ages and without doubt we're going towards a model in cycling where we're people and riders are taking more risks with younger riders. I mean, Pozhikar won the 21 and then Matt Holmes was 25 or 26 when he even went pro for the first time. So as you said, people develop at different ages, but I think we're moving towards a trend where when you finish under 23s, if you haven't got a pro contract, it goes up. It was 10 times harder to get a pro contract after. To get it there. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? So you mentioned you finished juniors and, and had your first year with uh, Madison Genesis. Talk, talk us through that transition going from, from juniors to, to senior rider. Um, it was never going to be easy. I was also the baby of the team on Madison. So I think Joey Walker was also under 23 that year, but he was a final year. So by three or four years, I was the youngest. And then we had a lot of, I call them proper adults on the team. So guys who were late 20s, early 30s, married, houses, like a couple of guys had kids. And it was a, a big culture shock because I was at school as well at the time. So on training camps in January and in February, would do our training and I'd come back and have to sit at the table and write an English essay. And you it, oh, yeah. That's so bizarre. That's just such a for someone that obviously did grow it. That's such a bizarre concept. So you were basically doing your second year A levels, right? Mm-hmm. That's correct. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, logistically, how did it all work? Just getting around the place and you know going away for for races. How did you? Must have been pretty stressful. At the time, I didn't admit to it. My school were really, really good to me. They gave me loads of time off on the basis that I do do my work. Yeah, at the time, I thought oh, I'm I'm breezing this. I'm breezing this. And then I think it was about two weeks after after I actually finished my A-level exams, I was just completely burned out and I was 
pretty dead riding bad and I think it kind of hit me I was like ah yeah I've been going 100 miles an hour since September training racing studying um I need time and it took me a few weeks to get over that before I could then go again it's just a shame but I think it was inevitable trying to almost do two full-time jobs because my sixth one was full-time as well so I'd be there nine till half three most days get the training in racing at the weekends yeah that's that's that that will uh that'll do it what what was funny was um we did trobro leon which is a uci 1.1 really good race gravel race and everything i did that on the sunday i think it was and then on the no that was on the saturday and then on the monday or the tuesday morning i was back in assembly um a full school assembly and we've gone from like tv cameras people cheering us and then just sat at the back of the hall listening to some teacher making a speech on something and it's like two different completely different worlds like living parallel lives right and what did everyone at school think i mean were they pretty supportive were they following other cyclists there or was it just sort of yeah two totally separate existences um separate existences and of course my group of mates being my group of mates they just took the mick out of me because i wore lycra and I'd take the mick out of them for whatever. Oh, look, I'm in Spain on a training camp, whereas you're in Caister at school. But yeah, that's kind of the way we got through it, just bantering each other. But yes, yeah, as I said, school were great. School were really, really good to me. Um, and I couldn't, have, I couldn't have got through it without what they did. The amount of time I got off, my attendance record was horrendous. Um, yeah. What, 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 what A-levels did you do in the end? Must be English, because I read some of your writing. You write pretty well. Uh, it was English literature, uh, which I despised. Um, I did. Oh, it's no secret in at school that I hated it. I had a battle with a couple of the teachers. Uh, I just like looking out the window and not really paying attention. And um, so I did English Lit, History, and PE. So PE for PE, I actually used my my World Championships uh, Eurosport footage for my coursework, which was uh, convenient. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Very cool indeed. And and what what type what part of that year did you did you learn about Madison Genesis folding and and how did you sort of react and I can't remember. I think it might have been June time, so it was relatively early. Yeah, I mean they were good, but at the same time, I got a call at ten to whatever the hour was. Let's say ten to six. I was sitting there eating tea, and I got a call from our DS at the time who said, "Have you checked your emails?" And I was like, "No, because it's whatever time and I'm eating tea." He was like, check your emails now. And there's a press release saying, obviously, we're folding. And he said, this is going live in 10 minutes. I just thought I'd give you a shout so you don't see it on Twitter first. And I was like, wow. Oh, wow. That's a lot to process. Yeah. So, yeah, I was kind of... That is a lot to process. So, just going back, you were probably right in the middle of your A-levels then, right? June or just finished them. Just You'd finished made, them. You made the decision that you were going to continue cycling and, and not go to uni or whatever. And then suddenly you find out that the team's folding. That must have just thrown everything up into the air, right? Yeah, I remember um, going into the garden and calling my coach stroke mentor at the time and saying, like, what the hell do I do? I, I spoke. I tried to speak to a couple of English teams, um, like Conti teams at the time. And there was only really one which I really wanted to go to. And they were full. Yeah. Um, well, they were full. They just didn't want me. So I was like, well, we're going to have to go to France. And, well, there was, a, there was a process in between that. So I spoke to a couple of World Tour Devo squads, which seemed positive, but then just didn't go anywhere. So then I was like, oh, this thing with Chambry came up. And then I flew out to Chambry, spent two or three days there, and 
I think the day I flew home, they called me that night and said, "Yeah, we'll we'll offer you a contract." So that was super cool. That was September though, so relatively late. September. Wow. Okay, so you had a few sort of scary months there. You you sort of sealed that in September, then you moved out there in January, right? Uh yes. So I, I think ninth or tenth of January was my first day in Chambry. Cool. Uh, tell everyone a little bit about the team and and uh, and the setup and what you what you were doing. So we we are straight. We were. Don't know what tenants to speak in. They are the Agi Desert Mondial Development Squad, but they're not a continental team or anything like that. They're technically a French club team, so a DN1 team, and we're connected with the Agi Desert Pro team. Uh, same bike, same kit, same town we're based in. And same brown bib shorts. Same beautiful brown bib shorts. I was actually, my ride I did this afternoon, I was out in brown tights and um, a brown rain jacket, which was a struggle. <laughs> Very strong. Um, so yeah, it's it's basically the Azure Deserve feeder team. Um, in all, well, I was going to say in all but name, but yeah, it's pretty much called the Azure Deserve feeder team. So, so yeah, it was an interesting year. It was the culture is just so different to what I was used to. Um, so different or so different? So different. Sorry, um, ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, I went from sorry, I, I changed everything. I changed the country I live in. I caught a cause to that. That was actually a Frenchism slipping in because of that I changed my nutrition I changed my coach because I was coached by the team just ev- every little thing to do with my performance changed this year okay and um, so how did that affect you um mentally not great and to be honest I wasn't riding this season I haven't been riding great all year so I had a bright race my only race before COVID was good really good actually I was flying when I came back in July well, sorry, when I went back to France in July, but I could just never really get kick-started my race season. And then I got ill kind of end of August. Then I got concussed and it was kind of just like one blow after another. And I was very happy to draw a line under the 2020 race season. And out there, obviously amazing life experience to go and live in uh, another country at the age you did it and obviously learn a bit of French and stuff. And I suppose in some regards, if you changed everything in in, in one go in terms of nutrition and training and stuff like that, how, do you feel it sort of helps you figure out what works for you as an athlete? Um, yeah. So my biggest takeaway is this year I wor- I've learnt what doesn't necessarily work for me. Uh, yeah. And people might say, "Oh well, it's a wasted year because you didn't get any results, or you didn't do this and you didn't do that." Which is true. I didn't get any results, but I wouldn't say it's a wasted year because I know now what I need to go well, and whether that coaching, nutrition. Or simply just, I know I go better when I'm happy. And that sounds really stupid because there's not a metric for happiness when you're riding your bike. I think as bike riders... No, I sorry, I don't think that does sound stupid at all. Like, I think it's... and I, th- I think that when you're... And um, the age you're at, I, I think, I think when you're my age, you kind of, that that's a given. It it's obviously makes a lot of sense. But I think when you're younger, you, you, if someone was to give you that advice before you'd gone out to France for a year, you probably would have just said, yeah, whatever. So you've gone through that and realized that. And I think that's probably going to be quite powerful for you. Yeah, I was, I, I kind of realized it. And then I was chatting to a Madison Genesis teammate or a former Madison teammate, Eric Rousel, who works at British Cycling now. And I was just chatting to him when I was, going through the process of looking at moving teams and his biggest takeaway was or my biggest takeaway what he said was it doesn't matter what country you end up in who you end up riding for he said if you're happy you ride your bike well 
And he said it took him a long time to realize that. And it kind of clicked with me that that's really true. So, for example, if I'd have moved back to the UK to race on the elite scene, I'd have got a lot of stick on social media and maybe not directly, but I know people would have gone, oh, look, he's gone to France, he's cracked or he's failed or whatever. But at the time, in my head, if I'm thinking, well, I'm happier racing at home, I'll race better, and then I can kick on. I mean, I'm I'm not racing on the British elite scene next year, but that's the example. So it doesn't matter what everyone else is with you, as long as you're happy. Yeah, I, you've got to do what work, works for you, right? And I think that, that to have had that lesson and realise that, you know, we're still you still got your whole career ahead of you. It's it's only going to set you in good stead for what's next. Then, are, are we allowed to reveal what what is next for you? Is, I mean, just first of all, did, I mean, did you go out there on a one year contract? Was it to go to France for a year? Is uh, that always yeah. the plan? Yeah, one year contract was always the plan. And to be honest, this time last year, my my plan was just to stay there for my whole under twenty three years. Um, that was the original yeah. plan. Um, yeah. Obviously, as you learn things, things change, and we got to a point I just I decided it wasn't necessarily the best place for me to be because I wasn't performing like I know I can. Unhappy. I, I I was unhappy with how I was performing, and as a cyclist, when you're un- unhappy with how you're performing, that's really a whole thing in life. If you're riding well on your bike, you're happy. If you're not riding well, you're not happy. And for me, it just wasn't it wasn't the best environment for me to race, and I was almost banging my head against a brick wall. This isn't a criticism of the team. It just didn't work for me personally, so I um I kind of knew I had to I had to move on, and I had a couple of um again some really positive talks. In fact, there was this one under twenty three team I I basically thought I'd signed for, and then that was pulled right at the last minute, like right right at the last minute. Uh, so w- without mentioning any names or or anything like that, but but what what causes a deal like that to to fall fall through at the last minute? Um, so in this situation, it was sponsor-driven. Um, right, okay. I wasn't... They wanted riders from their own country. Um, country, yeah. And being English, it didn't fit. Um, so that was pulled by their big boss at the time. Um, so they're almost not their director or their coach, their, their manager, the manager and boss of the team, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and then I had a I had a handshake agreement, actually, with another French DM1 team just a club like again a, a good level club team so that was all agreed and ready to go and then in the background there's always there's always things going on in the background but you never really expect it to come through the amount of times you get your hopes up as a cyclist and then it falls through so yeah i'd pretty it's much a roller coaster i don't know how you do it. it must be super stressful going year from year jesus um the between when i decided to leave and after that first contract fell through, which I've just spoken about, that was a really, really dark moment, like really dark. Because mm-hmm. um, I knew I didn't want to stay where I was. There wasn't anything else on the table at the time. And in my irrational head at the time, irrational emotional head, I was thinking, well, there's nothing else on the table and I don't want to stay here. The only other option is stopping. Oh, wow. Like, I knew I didn't want to. But at the time, I was just like, I can't stop. I'm plumbing 19, and I'm not finished here yet. But for the first time in my life, that kind of – well, not first time in my life. That's an exaggeration. First time in the last few years, that switch was kind of on. And I knew I didn't want to, and I knew I couldn't stop. But that was kind of where I was for a few days. And then I got kicked back into shape by my coach, or stroke mentor, who was like, 
sort yourself out, mate, kind of thing. And then this led to shout out to your coach. Who are you working with at the moment? So this is a, this was my old coach, a guy called James Millard, who's I've been with him for three or four years now. He's part of my coaching team with uh with Alex Dalsit, so they've looked after me for three or four years. Um, I've now actually moved across to a guy called James Sprague, who confusingly I, I, I always work with coaches called James. But yeah, so this was my mentor at the time. He kind of said, right, sort yourself out, whether you're racing at a lower level French team or a British elite team, whatever it is. He said, use your contacts, get in touch with people. He said, I'm not letting you stop. And at the, at the time I was being, say, emotional and irrational. I knew I knew I wasn't going to stop, but it was like, oh, God, it's just another blow. When I, and yeah. Throughout this, I was still riding bad. So, as I say, this French team came came along. Everything looked great. I was ready to go there pretty much. I'd met the team, met the manager, gone to see the apartment. And that was all going on. I think it was actually due to move in on the Monday or the Tuesday um, the next week. And then I got a phone call the Thursday night. I was out for a couple of drinks with some friends in Chambry. And um, this phone call came through at like 11 o'clock at night. Or a text first. I was like, are you free for a call? And um, so I took the call, like two or three beers in, and it was Axel Merckx from, he was calling from Canada. So he was like, oh, like, this is what we're offering you. Like, if you want to join, we'll send the contract through tomorrow. You can sign it. So um, yeah, I'm with, currently called, we're currently called Hagen's Berman Axion. And while it seems like it came out of the blue, it was, it was a couple of emails in the background, but uh, it shocked me. Um, I was very surprised when it came through, but at the same time, you you don't say no when that offer comes through. Um, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely I'm on cloud nine till about next year. I'm buzzing. I cannot wait to get into next next year's race season. Uh, yeah, bet you can. absolutely buzzing and and so well timed given given the Giro this year. And uh, but we'll, we'll come on to that in due course. So off to Girona in January, right? Yes. Yeah, so about six weeks now until well, when, I don't know when this is going live actually because as we as we're speaking for reference, um, Axion haven't announced that I've signed, so we're holding this podcast off for the listeners. So the date today is what the twenty fifth. I want to say twenty fifth of November. Um, yeah, I think so. Yeah. And I'm moving out to Girona 6th, 7th of January. And I'm going to base myself there for majority of the year, um, probably all year next year, actually, which is very exciting, very good for training and just a great place to be a bike rider, I think. Great place, but particularly if you, you need to be happy on the bike. I'm sure you'd be happy on the bike in Girona. What a place. And and, and, and what footsteps, footsteps to follow in terms of the riders that have gone through the team, right? Ben King, Taylor Finney, Jesse Sargent, Alex Dalset, Lawson Craddock, George Bennett, Ian Boswell. There's, I mean, the list goes on and on, doesn't it? Yeah, it's, it's one of those things I'm very aware of the riders who have been through the team and have gone pro through the team. Their hit rate of sending out the World Tour is ridiculous. At the same time, I know... I know when this goes live or when the tweet goes live that I've signed for Axion, a lot of people will go, oh, how the hell has he got on there? And in a way, it's true that I haven't got I haven't got results at under 23 level, which I'm not going to say would warrant a place on a team like this, but I haven't got the results which are necessarily the best in the world. And I'm well aware of that. And I'm also well aware that you don't, just because you're riding for Axion, you don't go pro straight away. That's not how it works. You've still got to work and you've still got to win races. But this winter and now more than ever i'm kind of i know myself that i've got the ability to be 
to be good at the level I'm at. And I'm kind of ready now to to prove it. And I think in the last couple of years, 2020 for me has been a write-off on the bike for COVID, for illness, for injury. It was just a, an expletive word, which I don't want to use. It was just an awful year. But it has been for so many people, right? And I think you have that context. But, you know, Joe, they, they obviously see something in yourself in terms of, obviously, your ability on the bike, but but you as an individual as well. I think that's kind of key. I think what teams like that are looking for. Yeah, and um, their calendar is exceptional. But the biggest thing I picked up on when um, when I spoke to them the first time around was they said they're a serious team, but they're a team which has to have fun while doing it. And that element for me was massive. So kind of every team says they're a family. Not every team is a family. That's You always hear, oh, I'm so excited to join this new team, the new family, the new guys. It's not always true. Whereas you see on social media, guys who talk about Axion in the past, it's it still seems like one big group and one big family. And I mean, I haven't met any of the guys yet. A lot of us are going to be living in Girona, I think. But I'm excited to be racing in a team which has fun while racing. That's going to be really yeah. like exciting. Absolutely, yeah. The dynamic of the team's better as well. It makes you want to work for your teammates and just bring everyone together. You mentioned the calendar. Obviously, you probably don't know what races you'll be doing next year. But give us, give us, give us an idea of some that are on the radar that you'd love to be racing in. Um, honestly, I haven't seen a 2021 calendar from the team from going from previous years. The baby Giro stands out. Yeah, I. Awesome. I'm a, I'm a good I'm a good climber. Um, but I've never had the ability to. I've never done any mountainous races as an under 23. I've just never had that opportunity. So I really think I could. I'm not. I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, I can win the under 23 Giro. But I am going to sit here and say I can do a good ride on a stage, or maybe try and do a good GC with a view to next year, um, well, the year after. And I just want to have a crack at races which. In my mind, I always know have suited me, but I've just never had the opportunity to do. Whether that is or isn't a Giro, um, that depends on the calendar. But those sort of mountainous races, and I believe we're going to have a a very heavy, if not complete, European calendar. Again, I'm. This is just this is what I've picked up on places like Cycling Tips or Cycling News. I haven't actually seen an official calendar yet. This is just the all the stuff which is out in the public already, but. Um, in my eyes, they're one of the one of the best teams for developing riders and for having a good race program. So whatever the program is, I'm sure it's going to be stacked full of opportunity and it's going to be one of the best programs out there. So excited. I think you'll have a lot of fun. So, so tell, tell us all what the next sort of five weeks looks like in terms of your preparation training wise. I mean, what this is your, your winter now, just sort of getting yourself ready to, to hit the ground running in, in January, I assume, which I'm sure you've got, probably got sort of team camps lined up as well so over the next five weeks what what sort of hours and what kind of sessions are you competing at the moment um so i'm in my third or fourth week back riding now and i've just come off the back of two just over 20 hour weeks so big hours but nothing spectacular all just kind of zone two just typical base miles currently in a bit of a rest week but on friday which is two days time I've got my first baseline fitness tests of the winter, just kind of a 30 second, a three minute and a 12 minute test just out on the road for some baseline testing. And then um, next week, I think I've got a 25, 24, 25 hour week on the bike. Again, mostly zone two, but it's just big hours this time of year because I've got good numbers fresh, but my numbers 
when fatigued are nowhere near as good as they should be or could be. So the big thing we're trying to build at the minute is my fatigue resistance. And the way you do that is through doing big hours, which is going to be a lot more fun in January in the Girona sun. (laughs) At the minute it's quite cold and windy, but uh, it's not bad. Gritty, it's gritty. It'll toughen you up. And and here's here's a question for you. Obviously, tw- twenty five hours a week, predominantly zone two. I mean, for for us, sort of weekend warriors and and, and the like, who obviously use coaches or have programs and stuff. That, that that kind of zone two riding, it's quite a small zone. I mean, how as a pro, how how strict are you in terms of keeping to your zones and and how do you do it? Because it's almost quite hard to ride at zone two, right? Yeah. So as as I mentioned before, I've actually changed coach this year or this winter. I've come across to working with James Sprague, who's kind of a sports scientist, and he won't mind me saying he's an absolute geek when it comes to this sort of stuff. And at the start of uh, winter, when we're working together, we kind of set out parameters, and my zone two parameter is 145 beats a minute. So I've got to ride everywhere, un- well, everywhere in zone two under 145 BPM. Um, so you're doing on heart rate, it's zone two heart rate, not zone two pa- on your power meter? correct at the minute anyway yeah yeah at the minute and that's simply because my zone tune power in at the start of november and my zone tune heart rate are completely different things because i was so unfit like i should be after my off season for me to do my zone tune power i'd been doing high zone three heart rate which is definitely what what i didn't want so I mean, I've been doing rides averaging 25, 26k an hour for four or five hours, which, like, around here, Lincolnshire's relatively flat. I mean, it's windy, really windy, but 25, 26k an hour is pretty slow. Uh, yeah. But as long as I'm un- under 145 BPM for the time being, all is good. That takes a lot of self-discipline if someone comes past you not to chase them down. <laughs> That's the hardest thing. And I've gone from... I mean, also, I'm riding around um, in actually dessert kit. So r- I suppose it is kind of pro kit, riding a very nice bike, riding pretty slow. So whenever someone sees me, whether it's a mate or someone who I kind of know, they'll come storming past me and they're like, bloody hell, what are you doing today? But, yeah, just riding easy. Yeah, it seems counterintuitive, but uh, that's very cool. And tell us, because you're, you're a, um, a, a Dave Rayner athlete, aren't you? Yes, I am. Tell us a, bit, a little bit, I'll tell everyone listening, that might not have come across the the, the fund, how it works and how they how have they supported you. So the Dave Rayner Foundation, I think they are now, are a charity based in Yorkshire, but they kind of they cover the whole of the UK and they support riders who so male and female, mainly under twenty three riders who race abroad. But I mean, I'd say ninety five percent, if not all, the riders this year were racing in Europe. And they fund us for things like rent or help us with food costs and just your everyday life stuff, which if you're a full-time cyclist, you don't necessarily get a wage. Yeah. Uh, and the Rainer Fund just give a monthly like a monthly sum. It depends on your situation because some teams pay rent, some teams pay food, etc. Um, and they allow, without their support, I'd say a lot of us couldn't race or would have to lean heavily on, say, banker mum and dad or gosh shockingly we might even have to work more hours which i mean everyone works throughout winter i'd say and you know i can't put a number on it but if i was to i'd say 80 percent of us have some sort of part-time job throughout winter but yeah throughout summer if you were then racing working training 
you just wouldn't be able to perform at your max and you wouldn't be able to make the step up, which we all want to do. So the Rainer Fund allow us to live comfortably and just allow us to race. Um, and I think there's, I think there's more than 40 riders on the fund this year. And I mean, we alluded to Teo earlier quickly and Teo Gegenhart was a Dave Rainer funded rider only three or four years ago when he was on Axion. So right so you're following in his footsteps it's uh, yeah and the funders i mean more and more riders every year i mean it's it's been going since i think 95 hasn't it it's um incredible thing really mm, and it started relatively small but now there's um i think it's it's just growing with time and as the riders they're funded have got better one thing's game media support the funds growing with it and um every year well bar this year because of covid there's a big dinner in in leeds which there's like um auctions for memorabilia etc and i mean the names on on the fund uh who have been on the fund in the past sorry are just kind of a who's who so it's even say teo two or three years ago teo was on the fund and he won the giro last month and without i'm not saying without dave rayner fund that teo wouldn't have won the giro but it certainly helped him along his way yeah, absolutely. It's because it, it's cycling is a strange sport, isn't it? In the respect that you know, coming through is incredibly hard, and and um, you know, financially, yeah, at the at the top end, there is money there, but but it's it's a very hard sport to to make your way in, isn't it? Yeah. So I mean, there's there's no way near the money of a sport such as football. And in a way, I probably should have just stayed in football because there's a lot more money. Hey, you could have been a goalkeeper on 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 ninety grand a week. Yeah, I'd have been laughing. But yeah, there's. As you say, we don't have the the system. So in football, they have kind of, let's say, a team such as Manchester United. They then have the under-21s or the reserves and the academy. And even at academy level, you're making decent money. Where yeah. at Conti level, which is the third tier of professional cycling, I know tens and tens of riders who, are, who have a continental license but don't get paid a penny from their team. Um, so I suppose... There's a big debate. What what is a pro in cycling? In my eyes, it's pro Conti because you've got to earn a minimum wage. But I suppose Conti is semi-professional or maybe even professional by name, but definitely not by salary. So it is it's a struggle. And say I'm lucky, I do a bit of freelance work on the side. And in the early days, I was supported a bit by my parents. But you get to an age you don't want to be supported by by your parents naturally. So until you get that first contract of which is a pro conti of thirty thousand euros a year it's going to be tough and you're going to be living in team housing or you're going to be skimping somewhere definitely yeah absolutely absolutely and that's why the day rainer fund is fantastic for that and, and i'll put the link to the fund in the show notes as well and if anyone's interested you, you, you can donate and you can read up a little bit more about it as well you mentioned doing a little bit of work on the side you're moonlighting as as a writer how did that come about again don't really know probably during my A-level days, I did I wrote so many essays and I never really enjoyed writing my essays because it wasn't about something I was interested in. Yeah. But I kind of developed a bit of a skill for writing and I thought, oh, I've got a relatively interesting story doing A-levels while racing for a Conti team. So I wrote a little bit about it. And then um, this year I, was, I kept a monthly journal for the British Continental website. And that was kind of where it started like I'm going to say mainstream I mean I'm not you, you know what I mean they're not like big 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 massive global publication um but 
within the cycling sphere, the British Contour well supported website. And then I met Dave Everett, who's a journalist for Cycling Tips, because he lives in Manatee. And we did a video together. And from that, I got in touch with the Cycling Tips editor, pitched them a couple of bits, and just kind of taken off from there. And it's again, it's like anything. Once you do a couple of things and you get a bit of recognition, it's easier to get your foot in the door. And I think I have a bit of a head start on, because there's a lot better writers than me out there. But I think because I'm a racer as well, at a relatively decent level, um, I think that's a little bit of an in with the cycling publications. Um, yeah, I, I, no, I get that. Obviously, there's not many not many racers that, that are doing too much writing. But also, I, th- I think your style of writing is... Uh, it's quite it's quite lighthearted and it's quite quite an insight and I think that you know we can get interesting to get your views just on, on pro cycling and, and the structure of it anyway but but I think you know that, that's what the fan wants it wants that accessibility and insight to to pros really because there is a there's a you can relate to riding and racing a bike and just to see the other side of the fence and you sort of you you get that in your writing quite nicely I think yeah that's um I think that's kind of what not set it off but um my writing style has always been quite open as you say almost chatty yeah um, and don't get me wrong editors are amazing at their jobs and i've actually just I've done my first feature for cycling weekly which goes live tomorrow in the magazine and that was completely different to anything i've ever done before because it's not a kind it's not a blog piece it's a it's a magazine feature and yeah my first draft compared to the final draft is night and day. And I learned so much in that process. But the blog style, I just love writing because I kind of write how I speak. And I think for a lot of people, it's good. I mean, don't get me wrong. These sites are they do incredible content. But sometimes you just want to read something as if you were chatting to someone in a cafe. And I, I hope what I try and portray is that sort of lighthearted, friendly, insightful chat, I suppose. Yeah, I, 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 and I think you do, and I think that's that's why it's enjoyed. I think that you really you really get that, and you know, I think that if I look at sort of cycling and and um, as the sport is obviously needs to grow and wants to grow and, and needs to become more sustainable as a as a model, I think that sort of accessibility and insight to to a rider's mind is is the way to do it, and and um, so yeah, keep up the good work, basically. Yeah, thank you, and it's definitely changing, like. I don't know how many of the listeners will know that Teo, Teo Gegenhart again, he is, say he's 25, I think. And yeah. he he's a really open guy. You wouldn't think he's a Grand Tour winner. Um, and I think it's changed with younger riders. So Teo did a video with Ben Foster, who's a goalkeeper, Premier, uh, no, championship goalkeeper, sorry, um, on Ben Foster's YouTube channel. And it was just a guy who's won the Giro last month, just riding around the lanes with, a professional footballer and you'd never get that from someone like Froome or someone like Nibbly. and I think because my generation and Teo's generation I suppose were all kind of Generation Z or whatever we've all did I just call it Generation Z that was so American Generation Z we've all grown up and you're your mates at the Mick have you for wearing like we just wait till they hear you say that yeah but um yeah so we've grown up with social media and I think exactly yeah so I this is what I put my finger on I totally agree you've grown up with social media but also I think that um you know if, if you look at the the era that 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 Froome uh, and co followed it was that Amerta era where where it was a very guarded 
you know cyclists were very guarded and they gave a, a very sort of one line messaging and that's there was always that sort of so I think there was a bit of a hangover from that they just almost didn't know what they could and couldn't say or what they could you know how much of themselves they could give to the press uh, and, and what social media wanted to see but to your point I think your generations come through they know how social media works they know that people want that accessibility so I think you can see a, a big shift in terms of how that's changing and hopefully I think that is something that will help the sport grow it's, it's what the sport really needs and you know I had Graham Bartlett on here as the CEO of Velon and they do some amazing content and their mission statement is to grow the sport but I think there's a massive disconnect in terms of the content and they're, they're producing and and all the many cyclists out there who love cycling but don't actually follow the sport that's where you need to join the dots and if you have someone like yourself and Teo who give that kind of accessibility I think that will help grow it yeah and I think I totally agree with you and I think the difference with social media to almost content is in some eyes they'll be the same thing in my eyes they're very different social media is picking up your phone when you're on a ride and maybe doing a quick story content in my eyes is usually a scripted event and yes the difference is people enjoy the insight or the peek behind the curtain of what yes Hart is doing in training like yes you're wrong it's great seeing him in this Castelli advertisement when he's talking to the camera but what they prefer is what he's having after training like or the little thing the little stupid things which people don't think you care about but obviously in the social media world everyone cares about everything i do because you can relate to it right we've all you know to see someone you know eat their breakfast before their race exhausted and and don't feel like it we've all been tired before going out riding eating breakfast and don't feel feel like it so you it's that relatability you've got superstars who can do superhuman things but they're also human like you it's that connectivity yeah and that's that's the biggest thing um Cycling tips. I mean, I'm a bit biased cycling tips because I do some work with them, but they did some great things over the tour. I think it might have even been in partnership with Velon. And it was a behind the scenes look of kind of each team. And it was a really good video. So it kind of gave the behind the scenes of the Yumbo Visma dinner table and like the speeches they do after someone won a stage or whatever. And then the sort of exactly. thing because that's the one we're see. Exactly that. Yeah. At the end of a stage, if you see whoever giving a quick interview, don't get me wrong, it's insightful and it's interesting to a degree. But if you've just got off your bike after six hours, the last thing you want is to speak into a uh, into a microphone. Whereas Cambridge up in your face. Yeah. Well, once you've recovered, had your protein shake, recovered a little bit and just had a rest, and then like the behind the scenes things come out. It's the same with EF Gone Racing or with backstage pass with Oracle Green Edge. People love seeing what happens in the bus and behind the scenes. Yeah, it's that real, give me the real stuff. Exactly that. Yeah, very good. Excellent. Well, look, keep up the good work with the writing. We love it. And um, we'll, we'll get your blog and, and uh, any other sort of articles you've done into the show notes as well. If you're interested in listening in some of the stuff that Joe's done, do check them out and have a have a read. Joe, thank you for taking the time. No, thank it's you. Been good to chat. It's been very good to chat and very interesting uh to have a chat about these things such as social media and just in general yeah yeah absolutely will you will you stay in touch we wish you all the very very best uh in your journey and we'll be following intently on the platform and yeah let us know how you go and uh yeah all the best with it i will do thank you very much for having me and thanks everyone for listening cheers joe take care thanks thanks for listening please subscribe to the podcast 
And more importantly, don't forget to download the Unfound app and join cyclists from around the world on the hub. We'll see you on there.